This is our third week in a sermon series called The Way We See the World. And again this week, every week, we're going to start by just reminding uh, you, the church, why we want to say and show the way we see the world. The reason for that is you can have two churches with identical mission statements, identical statements of faith, both that affirm, say, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, Father, Almighty, Maker of Heaven and Earth, and Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, and they can recite that, and it can be very true in their recitation of that, and yet they can, two churches that say the same thing can, can live that out in two vastly different ways. And so, we want to be able to express um, how we take the truth of the scripture and how we intend as a church to apply that, um, how we want to love God and love those around us really well. So we started um, looking at our mission statement, which is Christ healing community. And what we, what we mean by that is the, the short line I shared in that sermon was that healing cannot come when we hide from one another. So when God sent Jesus, he wasn't just on a vacation, but literally what, he, what God was doing was, was showing us our greatest need and then meeting our greatest need by sending his son. So in ways that we'd hidden, feeling like we were um, scared, filled with shame and vulnerable, he let us know that he sees us where we are and he meets us where we are. And that healing leads to us actually having a genuine sense of community together. From that, the way we plan on living that out is what we call our theological vision. And Daryl started preaching on this last week. It's to be a church of the city, incarnating King Jesus in city life, speaking its language, singing its rhythms, sharing spaces, freeing the oppressed, fighting injustice, finding people of peace, and inviting the city into the kingdom of God. So last week, Daryl preaching on a church of the city and, and highlighting that we're not just a church in the city, which you can have a, a churches that inhabit corners, like, oh yeah, that church on 5th Street, that's been there for 80 years. And yet, at some point, maybe got more and more removed from the city, so they just kind of dwell in there. Being a church of the city to us means that that we don't, we don't see walls. I actually was talking with a, a pastor um, this last week, and he said, yeah, my goal is to like, like puncture holes in the wall so people can see out better. And I was like, no, tear the walls down, right? Like that's the, the whole idea is to, is to not have any separation between us and the city, but, but God loves us in the same way he loves the city, and so how do we be people that instead of um, going us and them, that we um, are actively involved in the life of the community that we're in? Um, the way we do that, starting this week, we're going to look at incarnating King Jesus into the community. Um, literally what this means is we are called to live life like Jesus in the communities that we're in. Um, to start with... I want to share with you, we have interesting patterns as churches, right? We, we do things a little different. We get together weekly. We sing songs together. 
Uh, we put the words up on the screen. <laughs> you get to listen to a teaching around a specific text every week. That's not a typical pattern that, that happens elsewhere, right, in life. The reason why we do this, the reason why um, we spend about a half an hour teaching on Sundays is this, that, that I hope to give you a true view of who God is and a true view of who you are. A true view of who God is and a true view of who you are. And I want you every week to be able to bring what you thought and compare it to that, right? Compare to what we're seeing in the scripture. And hopefully, we, we're getting some of the, the ideas we've, we've brought around and maybe realize that we just had created expectations um, of worship, or we'd created ideas of God that just weren't right, and that by His grace, we can actually start seeing clearly. One way this happens, and I wanted to talk, is we talk a lot about the city, is there can be a concern that, um, that we will be a church that just focuses more and more on social issues. Um, in the, the mid-20th century, there was this idea of social gospel, um, as if you, you focus so heavily on poverty that all of a sudden you care actually less and less about what God thinks because you're just so passionate about an, an issue. And the way we see that today often is how furiously passionate people get about politics, right? Where, where we divide from one another, um, everything comes down to immigration or how this person views economics or uh, international relationships. And all of a sudden, we invest so much in that, that if simply so-and-so got their point across and people just listened to them, then literally what we hope for is that this nation will be amazing, right? And, <laughs> and that's not how it works. That is not how it works. All. And that is not why we talk about being a church of the city. And that's not why we talk about freeing the oppressed and fighting injustice. The reason why we talk about these things is because we have, we have wanted to align ourselves behind Jesus. We've wanted to respond to his call, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And we, wanted to, we, we want to say yes to that. And when we say yes to that, what do we become? We become people like Jesus. The words I use here, if you're not familiar with the word incarnate, or incarnation, um, what that means literally is to, to be made flesh. So um, we see that in God, who in the Old Testament, we see him approaching in fire and in this, this awe-inspiring way that, that led us to go, okay, you're powerful, but I don't know, I don't know if I can approach that power, that, that God who is amazing, and fearfully great, took on flesh and blood and became one of us. Okay, that's the idea of incarnation. And so how do we incarnate this incarnate Jesus into city life? Is that we, we see him, we see how he lived. Literally, we don't have to talk about this theoretically. What if God were one of us? Because we've got to see what he was like when he was one of us, and it gives power to the words, right? So when you speak to somebody else who has another religious belief, um, you don't just have to go, well, I think my philosophy is better. I think it's more logical. Literally, you get to go, 
Like, look at how God lived. And that, that is incredibly powerful. And so what I, I want us to do today is, is to see that we have a, a crystal clear example to follow into this city. Um, and that we get to shed some of our fears, maybe our own expectations, maybe um, some of our prejudices, and, and just walk behind him and be like him where he's calling us to be. So with that, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, we get the gift of hearing a story from the person who themselves experienced it. So um, chapter 9, verse 9 to 13 is when Jesus called Matthew, Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew, to follow him. And before we, we dive into this, I'm going to give you the, the context through the characters that you're going to meet in the story. Um, the first is Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. A tax collector uh, was a Jew who had been rejected by their people because they had aligned themselves with the Roman government to make money. <laughs> they collected taxes, but typically on top of that, they would add additional fees, and so they would make a lot of money. Okay, And so <laughs> the example that I thought of to, to illustrate this is, is the parking enforcer who who sneakily preys upon people. (laughs) Right? Like, you know when you park, there's somebody on a roof with binoculars like, oh yeah, 10.15, you better know, at 1.15, boom, ticket, right? Like, when the parking guy comes by, everyone's like, everybody in your cars! Right? That's the response because you just don't want to be around them. And, And that was the tax collector is when the tax collector came around, everyone just scattered. No one wanted to see how they were doing. And so, and so this is who Matthew is. And so since he's an outsider, the people that he gathers around him are outsiders. So we meet not just the tax collectors, there's more of them, but we also meet what, what is titled sinners. And the word sinner here is literally heathen or pagan, which just means those who who either um, don't believe in God, or maybe at one point believed in God, but they just don't obey God. So these are the people that don't associate at all with the Jewish religion. Um, And so both, because of that, would have been considered outsiders, and they they make their own little group together. And and that's who Jesus is sitting with in this story. We also meet Jesus' disciples, who are... (laughs) Are, are just bystanders in this, um, sharing the meal that they're sharing together, but they have responded to the call to follow Jesus. And so they're watching the whole time what Jesus is doing because Jesus is showing them this is how you interact um, with the world that I love. Um, and then the, the last group is the Pharisees, which were the people who, um, if you had a question about God, those, those are the guys you'd come to typically because they knew the Bible really well. And, um, and all the work that happened in the churches, they were the guys that, that did that work. Um, which is interesting that they oftentimes play sort of the villain in the stories that are in the New Testament. Um, with that context, uh, read with me Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting on the tax collector's booth 
Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous, to not call the righteous, but the sinners. So in this, our goal is right in, in, in just seeing who Jesus is and seeing how he lives to live like him. In 1 John 2.6, a verse that literally changed my life when I was in, in high school, it simply says, um, if you claim to live in God, you must live as Jesus did. If you claim to live in God, you must live as Jesus did. That's really straightforward. <laughs> but we make it really complicated. So, so how do we let that be as straightforward as it is? Um, the first thing we see Jesus doing in this story, or see Jesus being, is, is confident. So our first point is be confident. And I'm going to take you around, uh, familiarize you with Jesus' ministry, looking at Matthew 8, um, to the story in Matthew 9. So again, if you're in your Bibles, look at Matthew 8, just the very beginning of it. Um, Jesus has just finished uh, his Sermon on the Mount, which is um, his inaugural address, which is just explaining what he means by the kingdom come. And, um, and then immediately he launches into his ministry. And the, the first thing he, he does is he meets a, a man with leprosy. And what I want you to see in all these stories is that Jesus isn't overanalyzing things. He's not overcomplicating things. He's not even giving long like explanations for what he's doing. He's just walking in confidence and authority. So Matthew 8 says, Jesus came down from the mountain Side, a large crowd followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing, be clean. That's it. I'm willing, be clean. Um, Matthew 8, verse 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum and a centurion came to him asking him for help, the Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, well, shall I come and heal him? It wasn't like, well, explain the malady to me. It's just like this simple, well, do you want me to come? And, and the centurion, so confident in, in Jesus, just who Jesus was, he explained how he was not worthy to have Jesus come. And so Jesus not even talking, the centurion just leans and says, this guy's got a lot of faith. And he turns back to the centurion, verse 13, he says, go, let it be done just as you believed it would be. As simple as that. In uh, Matthew 8, starting in verse 23, it says, Then Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And, And he gets up, and he doesn't give them this big lecture of like, okay, don't remember, like all these things we talked about. And just like rehash it. No, he just says, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Like, I'm, I'm present with you. And then it says simply, then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves. And it was completely calm. 
next story, he meets two demon-possessed men coming out of the tomb. And this is fascinating. It, it really strikes this contrast, if you have a Bible, with red letters when Jesus speaks. Because this whole story, there's only one word Jesus says. Go. Uh, verse 30, it says, Some distance from them a herd of pigs were feeding. The demons begged him, Drive us out and send us into the herd of pigs. And he simply said, Go. And then the demons came out. So, <laughs> what is Jesus doing? Jesus is walking in absolute confidence. And what I want to invite us into as a church is to walk in the confidence that he had. Jesus was confident of who he was in his relationship to the Father, of what he was made, who he, not made, who he, he was, that he was the Son of God. So he could simply look at Matthew and say, Matthew, follow me. He knew that, that all the people he had passed that day, the hundreds of people on the roadside, he, he knew because he was walking by the Spirit. No, it's not them that you're meant to say, follow me to. It's Matthew. <laughs> and so he, when he walked past Matthew, he knew he didn't have to go into this whole like, so Matthew, let me tell you all the pluses and minuses of following me. All he did was he just said, follow me. And Matthew just leaves. It says, he told me that Matthew just got up and followed Jesus. So, so often in our lives, lacking confidence that, that Christ is with us and the Spirit is in us and, and leading us, what we do is we create these massive arguments in our head about what, how we're going to explain to someone Jesus is truly who he says he is. And so we get this like little speech prepared and then we sit down with our friend and we're like, I've been meaning to tell you this. Logical argument. Do you want to know Jesus? Right? And, and literally, God is going, follow me. Follow me into these places. Follow me into your relationships. I'm going to take you to the people who are ready even. And sure, sometimes he might give you a lot of words. He might give you the Sermon on the Mount to share. But there's sometimes all you need to do is say, do you want to know Jesus? And they're going to be like, I've been waiting for someone to simply ask me that. But don't overcomplicate it. Be confident in who you are and who he's calling you to be. What does this look like in our lives? Are we confident of our identity in him? So when we're with people who don't believe in Jesus, we're not constantly trying to like explain ourselves. Just be who you are. Be who God's called you to be. And then pray and sense his spirit, how he will lead you in that relationship. And you'll say the right thing. You'll give comfort when comfort's needed. You'll give encouragement where encouragement's needed. Are you confidently offering Jesus to others? Not because you're just trying to make the right setting but literally you're walking with him every step of the way in your life. Be confident, and that's what we see in Jesus. The second thing um, that we see here is to be present with people. And I think, I think these two are, are, are tied together in so many ways. Jesus being confident of the Spirit's leadership, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't hurried in his life. There's actually multiple times, and I won't bring you to all of them, over and over in the Gospels, as Jesus is walking, he, he keeps saying, my time has not yet come. People keep trying to force him into 
to the hurried life that they're living, or Jesus just saved the world. Right? And, and he wasn't going to do that. He was following the Spirit's lead, and he knew at the right time he would be in the place to save the world. But at this place, in this time, he is unhurried. We find him eating, literally reclining with the people he's around. And more than just reclining with them, I believe we see him enjoying tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners being people who, I think, were were made to think that they weren't enjoyable. And we do the same thing sometimes. Say you meet somebody who's been struggling with with a very obvious sin. All of us struggle with sin, every single one of us. First John says, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. So, right, take that one to the bank. Um, So all of us struggle with sin in a certain way. But then there's those who have very public, very obvious sins, and, and those were the tax collectors, and those were the sinners. And for those people in our culture, oftentimes we make them feel like they aren't enjoyable, like they aren't even human sometimes because of the way they're treated. And what Jesus is doing here is he is humanizing them by enjoying them. He's showing, you also were made. You are enjoyable, and I want you to be my friend. Right? Not my project, not the person that I like strategize about how to evangelize. I just want you to be at a meal with me, share this meal. And, and that is possibly the, the best proclamation of, of the goodness of God in someone else's life you can do is just to enjoy them because they are enjoyable. Saving the world does not mean sacrificing our time with people, all people. Um, Don't be too hurried. Don't rush past two people too quickly. Um, Some examples I thought of for this was um, of dads or moms even who can be so occupied with providing for their family that, that they aren't expressing love through time with their families. Um... If we and we can be, I'll generalize this more than I did last time. Um, if if we have people over to our homes, are we so concerned about everything that goes into having them in our home that we can't just stop and love them, stop and be present with them? Have we lived in the same neighborhood for twenty years but never actually showed kindness to our neighbors? Um, Have we lost touch with old friends just because they aren't a part of our pattern of life? Or, even worse maybe, because we're so busy at church that we don't have time to reconnect with them and simply let them know that they're awesome. Um, Have we maybe been involved at church for a really long time but never actually invited someone into our lives who we've been living alongside? That's really, really important. Um, how are we being present? Not just doing things for God, but, but being present with Him, letting know, uh, knowing for sure that He is inviting us, that the invitation He gives us isn't into a life of, of endless tiredness, but a, a, a way to finally enter His rest 
and from that place of rest and security to then love others well. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He forces me to lie down. (laughs) Is that your life as a Christian? Or are you constantly trying to do something to prove that you're awesome? You don't need to. Um, I think one way this should influence us as in confidence, this should influence us in the way that we, um, we tell others about Jesus. Um, I think we're, we are f- oftentimes uh, horrible with the way we, we think of showing others Jesus. I think so oftentimes we make it a plan and a strategy. Like, hey, let's plan on this Saturday to have the community in and show them how good Jesus is. And that's just like really unsustainable, right? Like that isn't life. Like my life, what I hope is that that in the way I live day to day, it's not any different than what I do when I'm preaching or anything that I do when I'm with you guys here. Like, like, honestly, you shouldn't listen to me if what I do in the day-to-day is different than what I talk about when I preach, right? You, you guys shouldn't listen to me if the only time I sincerely tell people about Jesus is after I've created a strategy around it, right? Like, if you love something, you talk about it. If it's given you life, you share it. And if, if God has given you life, Share that life with others. And that's what you see in Jesus. You see him just enjoying people because he enjoyed his relationship with the Father. So be present. Seeing this was confusing to the Pharisees. It was confusing so much they didn't even know how to approach Jesus about it. They approached his disciples. So they came to his disciples and they said, Hey, what is Jesus doing? And, and Jesus, overhearing what they had said, responded to them. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so, so we move from um, being confident to being present to the last is to being real. And, and this really is incorporated in the other two, but I'm going to deal with it uniquely just in response to the Pharisees' question. How is this possible? How is this possible that Jesus can spend time with those people? Um, one of the, the commentaries I was, I was read, uh, reading um, said, um, of his interaction with the sinners, it says, they came with Christ's full consent. He was far from displeased at their company and their freedom. He embraced every opportunity to do good to the souls of the worst of people. For such as these he came to call and save. So what's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees? What, what made the Pharisees so uncomfortable? And, and then what made Jesus so excited? That, so what I think is, I, I don't know if you have somebody you've just really been excited to see. And, and so when they come, you're like... Right, you're like, oh boy, you're like, you just can't wait because, like, you know, you're like just really happy, and 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 you get that with like Jesus is like 
when Matthew was like, well, can I invite some of my friends? And Jesus was like, yeah, can you invite Joey? I love that guy. Just never got to connect, right? And so Joey the sinner comes, and Jesus is like, yes, Joey, right? Because he gets to hang out with him. And, and so what made that Jesus' response and what made, what made the Pharisees' response discomfort? And the reason is, is because they saw the heart of God differently. Right? They saw the heart of, they understood the whole story of God differently. That's a big deal. Right? They understood the whole story of God differently. And so Jesus, rather than like, rather than going, you guys are morons, what he said to them is he says, go back to the scriptures and tell me what it means in Hosea 6 6, where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go back and let's see what the heart of God is. Let's see what the story of God tells. And let's come to our conclusion together. And so to help us understand what what he means here by I desire mercy, not sacrifice, turn with me to Hebrews 10. Um, And in Hebrews 10, the gift really, I think, in this is that many of us camp out so much in the New Testament because we live in this beautiful freedom that Jesus has offered us, freedom from shame and freedom from guilt, and then we come back to the Old Testament and it just, we're like, how do I interact with this? And I think, I think Hebrews 10 gives us um, the key to know how to interact with some of the things that are so hard in the Old Testament. And so Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 10, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Man, that's powerful. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. It is not the realities themselves. The reality is, is Jesus. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, um, would they not have stopped being offered for the worshiper would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So when we read the Old Testament and we see the sacrifices, they aren't the answer. They are, they are pointing towards the answer. They are a shadow. You know what a shadow is? It's like, it's like when you're a child, right? And you're panicking because all you see is tall people. And then you see a shadow that looks like the shadow of your mom. And you're like, maybe it's her. Right? And that's, that's what it's like when you, you finally, like you see it. And it's the anticipation of the real thing. It isn't the real thing yet. And so when we see them, we're not meant to go, that's it. We're meant to anticipate what would come. Therefore, when Christ, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. So I just want, I want to like help us all with this. Like I want you guys to read the Old Testament in this context. I don't want you to be confused by it. So when you're reading the Old Testament, I want you to see a shadow. 
I don't want you to try to grab onto the, uh, as if it's the full story. And that's what Jesus is saying. Verse 9, then Jesus said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifices of the body of Jesus once and for all. And so Jesus is going, this, let me tell you guys, let, let's talk about the story of God. The heart of God, the story of God has always been for the tax collector and the sinner. The story of God has always been for the person who felt farthest away from God, who, who wondered if God could really be for them. And unfortunately, what Israel had a hard time realizing is it was, that was them. Right? And unfortunately, that's what we fail to realize too sometimes, is that is us. <laughs> when we read that God... That Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Too often we read, we read ourselves as somehow cool and privileged. And the only privilege we have is that, that we have, because of his grace, had ears to hear and a heart that responds when he said, follow me. Right? And, and then... Our role is not to say, yeah, you guys who aren't following. Our goal is to say, hey, come on. Like what was so good, what's so freeing for me can be so good and freeing for you too. And to create context, perhaps around your table where you invite people to share a meal with you. And you can speak confidently about everything, about how you love how the flowers are going to start blooming on the apple trees. right? And you can talk about that, but then you also can talk about that how you don't experience shame in your life because God has been so good to you right? in the reality of the context of your life. Yeah, work's been super hard, and this guy's been treating me like a, a jerk, but you know what? Like I'm trying to love him. Well, why would you do that? Because God loved me. And, and I realized I really did not deserve that. And, and isn't it crazy that... It's crazy that, like, when we say that sometimes, people assume of us that we're just good. It's happened to me my whole life, right? People are like, oh, yeah, you don't really need to be loved by God. You just were good. Like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> right? Like, because what happens is we compare with one another. You're like, oh, well, I need a lot more grace than Marshall does. Right? Because I just, I'm so much worse. And so Marshall could never understand me. Like, so when Marshall talks about the love of God, he just doesn't realize that I just don't deserve. You know, like, we do that in our lives. Why? Because you want to create an excuse or reason why you've got it worse off and why God maybe can't reach you or his love really isn't for you. And that's just not the case. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is saying here. He goes, I came for you. I came for you who feel super miserable in the reality of who you are. I want you to bring that to the surface. I want you to share a meal with Jesus and hear his words of love and freedom for you that you can live absolutely free from shame and in relationship with him. And beyond just relationship, you can be adopted into his family. You can be called his own. And that's the good news of the gospel. So how, how do we be this? How do we be a church of the city? 
incarnating King Jesus in city life. How we do that together is we are confident of who God is and who he says we are. When God looks at Jesus and says, this is my son with him, I am so happy. That, that in Jesus, God looks at you and says, this is my son, my daughter, and with you I'm so happy. And from that confidence, we go out and we are present with people. We're not, we're not trying to impress anymore. We're not trying to show off. We're not trying to do stuff for God. We are present with people in the course of our lives sharing meals with them, going on runs with them, whatever you do, crocheting, I don't know, doing that with people. And in that, in that place, we are showing them that no one, no one is past the reach of the love of God. Let's commit as a church to do this. Um, to hold one another to this standard. What is that standard? Rest in God. And invite people into his rest also. And don't just, don't just call them to come to where you are. Go to where they are. Because Jesus went to Matthew's house. Let's do that together. Love you guys. Let's pray. God, it really goes without saying that we're very unworthy of the grace you've shown us the love that you have and not just on Sundays but every day freely give. I pray that you will stir our hearts, let them beat again, um, let them love you fiercely, let them respond. Uh, sometimes we're so scared to actually participate in love because we don't think we're worthy of it. God, overcome us with that. Just that you created us to be in that relationship. By your grace, we can still say yes to it. God, we worship you. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.